Dr. Emerson's quite brilliant, isn't he? Sociologist. He looks at social things. My, I'm a behavioralist, and so I spend a lot of time looking at people's behavior and what we do and how behavior affects society. So I'll give you, uh, I'll try to pick up where you left off, and, and we'll speak a little bit about, the question is, how does the church work together in, a, in, a, in today's culture? When you think about all the things that he talked about, what, what does it look like when we try to figure out a way to make all of that work? And so, I gotta time myself, I'm nice. Time cards is here. I'm usually late getting there and longer speaking, so. Um, and so, you know, and it's interesting that uh, what I've found when I look at behavior is that, um, is that, first of all, race is not a problem. It is actually an opportunity for discovery. Uh, when, I, when, you, when you set America as the standard, race becomes a problem. But if you look at it, it's kind of like, how do I figure out how to get these tall guys and these short guys to play on the same team? I mean, that's, if you look at it as a problem, then, you know, then you're going to be hindered. If you look at it as an opportunity to come up with a strategy that works, then you're going to have a solid team because what you're doing is using how people are designed to be able to put them to best leverage their skills, abilities, and their natural instincts to be able to achieve a common goal. Uh, one of the reasons why we have been connected with Christ Community for all these years is because we sat down first and said, do we have a common goal? Do we have a reason to be together? Race wasn't our motivation. Uh, race was something that we had to deal with because the fact that we were running down the same track and we had different experiences in our culture, then we needed to figure out what does it look like when we leverage our skills and be able to expand our opportunities to be more effective. So I want to spend some time talking about that for a little bit. I think uh, one of the studies I'm working on right now has to do with, um, here's the title that I'm proposing, uh, is that um, your child does not have a learning disability. And, and what my argument is, is the only reason why your child has a learning disability is because we have made the teaching uh, pedagogy, the way we teach, Axiomatic, we made that the solid standard and the truth. And so we measure every child, no matter how they're designed, by that particular standard. And our assumption is that if you can't learn our way, then you have a problem. Not, not necessarily that, we, that the child is the ultimate element and we need to figure out a way to effectively teach that child. So I have dyslexia, as many of you know. Uh, and what I'm really learning is that I have a different processing style than the pedagogy allows. So I don't have a learning disability. Uh, what I have is a different way of processing information. And so therefore, I'm not less intelligent, with, like I was told all my life. Uh, what it is, is I come to an intellectual conclusion in a very different way, and my teachers didn't know how to teach me in a way that was compatible to the way I was designed. Now, here's the one thing I learned is, I am designed this way so that I'm more appropriate for what God has called me for, even though I'm less compatible with the system that they put together to teach through. So it's the same thing with left-handed and right-handed people. You know, we told, we told all the left-handed people, no, you're doing it wrong. And we, as if our standard was what you had to adjust to rather than our training adjust to the child's natural inkling and the child's natural movement. Uh, in society, we are naturally moving in raci racial, uh, the culture is driving us in racial differences. And what we're doing is we are leaning to or trying to ignore and overcome and pretend that they don't exist. Those specific differences, God didn't make you white by accident, nor did he make me black by accident. 
We're intentionally this way. So we fit a particular way into the culture, and what we need to do is figure out how do we capitalize on our individual privilege. I'm going to say one more thing uh, before I try to get into the slides. Um, That uh, privilege, which is a bad word for most people, but I am glad I have black privilege. Okay? And what I mean by black privilege is I have a unique way in which I fit into the culture. In our culture, if you're tall, you have height privilege. That means that there are certain things that, that are to your benefit because of the way you fit into the culture. If you go to some cultures where basketball is not as important, your height won't matter whatsoever. Okay. So uh, what's happening is I have black privilege. Now, as a person that has black privilege, I can get into places and see things and do things that white people can't do. However, you have white privilege. And you can get in and do things and, 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 and deal with places that I can't get into because of my skin color. Like they won't follow you through the store as much as they'll follow me through the store. But you know what I discovered is when I was a criminal <laughs> and I was a multicultural, on a multicultural criminal team, uh, what we did was we would go into the store and, I, and we would, this was our agreement. I'm going to have security follow me while you guys take all the, and we would steal like things like glasses and all that kind of stuff. So I walked through the store and just looked suspicious by being black. <laughs> and security would follow me and my friends would steal. And then I'd be on my way outside the store, they would stop me and check me. <laughs> and I would have nothing. I did steal, but I used my black privilege. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I think we, to say that we don't have privilege means that that we're not recognizing that we fit uniquely into the culture and that fit has benefits, uh, some, con- some pros and some cons, and we got to recognize that. Now, if God designed us differently and fit us into the same culture, then apparently what he is looking at is a team of short people and tall people, and he would like for us to come together strategically and leverage our privilege. You know, I don't want to put the short guy under the goal to get the rebound. You know, and nor do I want to put the tall guy on the free throw line because <laughs> Shaq has taught us that that didn't always work. And, and so, uh, but I want to, what I want to do is effectively leverage everybody's fit into the culture so that we can, our common desire, our common goal can be flushed out in the most effective way. So let me kind of get to this for a little bit. And, uh, and the first thing I want to do is I want to kind of consider, I want to consider the key considerate, what are the key considerations for deep, deepening our, our uh, partnership? What do we need to think about in order to deepen our partnership? And in light of all the things that Dr. Emerson shared, I want you to, to, to kind of consider this. I think that we must be willing to execute change that is strategic, significant, measurable, and multi-generational. And why do I say that? Because if you listen to everything that Dr. Uh, Emerson said, what, what, what's happened to get us so segregated and to get the culture the way it is was strategic, significant, measurable, and multi-generational. And so therefore, if you drive the wrong way for two miles, you're going to have to drive two miles to get back. <laughs> and so what has happened is, as a church, we forgot that we're the salt and we start going with the flow rather than to disrupt the flow. In our world, the gates of hell can't prevail against us, but it has been prevailing against us. So what we have to do is we figure out the best strategies on how to push back. 
So let's talk a little bit about how God shaped us so that we're different from the culture, uh, the culture that we're in. First of all, he gave us a different citizenship. Uh, the church is to be, uh, is commanded to function on, uh, on a kingdom system. So our system, our identity in the culture should not be based on how it's defined in the culture, even though our benefit to the church is because of who we are in the culture. Y'all follow that? Or let me say it again. I can't define myself by how the culture describes me. However, my privilege is identified by how I fit in the culture. So when I, if, if what I bring to the table is going to be based on how the culture perceives me. And it's no fault of my own. It's just this is kind of where I am. So, uh, so, so I leverage the value in the kingdom that God has called me to with the benefits, the privilege that comes from what I get from being in the culture. Uh, let me give you a different example. When they kicked him out of Egypt or when they voluntarily left or, or when they weren't sure what the difference was. Uh, but, but as they roamed through the wilderness, one of the first things that they did was they said, what did you get from Egypt? And they said, they thought we got some jewelry, we got some stuff, we got some string, we got some rope, uh, whatever we got. Then he says, well, let's build what God wants us to have with what we got from Egypt. In other words, our privilege in the culture was utilized to subsidize the kingdom objective. And that's kind of really what we don't do. We, we separate ourselves. And the reason why, I, and I'll talk about it a little bit, why we're separated on Sundays. And, uh, but we separate ourselves by who we are in the culture rather than use who we are, what we have in the culture and who we are in the culture to benefit the kingdom's objective. Okay. Um, and so the second thing, so the first thing is he says our citizenship is in heaven. So therefore we see ourselves as eternally related more than what we are carnally related. So it's our sixth sense, which is faith, rather than our five senses, which are our physical attributes that determine our relationship with each other. Okay. Uh, the other thing is uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse number 20, uh, 28. Uh, it, talks of us, it talks about us being all one in Christ. In other words, your blood connection by your physical, your physical parents, the two people who slept together that made you exist. Am I supposed to say that? Anyway. <laughs> Sorry to say it now. Uh, but... But that does not determine your essence anymore, nor does the economic uh, situation that you found yourself in as a result of how you were born, which is kind of what the discussion is here in Galatians. He says none of that determined anymore, but you're all, in, you're all one in Christ. So the blood of Christ, the blood on the cross is the only one that can relate you to someone when it comes to your life objective. All right. So now let's go to this whole issue of Sunday morning being the most segregated. This is Martin Luther King says this. Sunday morning is the most segregated day of the week. Uh, when he made this statement, and, he, and here's, if you look at the researcher's statement, he said this as he was addressing the polarization of the country. He was talking about, we are so segregated that even when it comes to church, we have not figured out how to effectively work together. Now, the question then becomes, how do we begin to, to desegregate and begin to pull back together. Because I don't think that Sunday morning segregation is our biggest problem. I believe that Sunday morning segregation is our biggest sign that we have a problem. Okay? 
So, so if you solve Sunday morning by following the practical things, let's just make things look more rainbow. Then the question is, would you really solve the problems that Dr. Emerson was talking about? Now, you would have great, great time on Sunday morning. You would meet some people that you don't know. Uh, you would have some friends that you didn't have before, but then you would go back to your Monday morning life. And what we're learning in our relationship and our study through, uh, with, uh, led by Christ Community is that, uh, that we have a vocational calling. We have an impact that should, we should impact society Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday. Uh, and Sunday is that huddle, that gathering place to be able to get the plan to go out and do the stuff that we do in life. And so the question is, can Sunday do that if Sundays are segregated, uh, desegregated, if we desegregated all of Sunday. So let's look at two models of desegregation where we, to me, I think we drag the tail, uh, we start wagging the tail, thinking the dog would move. Uh, but uh, number one, the first one is, I think that the, the school desegregation, we created and made a disaster. Now, many of you know that I've worked a number of years uh, on, the, on the school board, uh, the state board, uh, worked on the national boards of, uh, of education under both the Democratic and a Republican leader. Uh, uh, I've spent a lot of time working with Secretary Spellings under Bush and, and uh, Secretary Duncan under Obama, uh, really kind of looking at, looking at this whole thing of desegregation and how it works. Uh, and I will tell you this, we destroyed every urban school in, uh, in our country uh, by trying to desegregate them because of the approach that we took. Our approach was, if we desegregate the schools, then the result is the communities will become desegregated. Which is, if I wag this tail, the dog gonna move. No, you cannot use your kids to create desegregation <laughs> in a society. And so when we did that, we did that, the efforts of the federal government uh, really drove this. And here's the one thing that we knew. When we started, when this study started, when, I, when it started, I was in school. I'm a product of, uh, of being bussed out of my community into some other school where, where people I didn't know. And, I, and we could spend a long time. We ought to have another meeting and just talk about that because I, I can give you a lot. Uh, but, but here's the thing that, that we also knew. We also knew that the most effective schools were the ones that were neighborhood-centered throughout the country. And so when we put the desegregation plan in, we said, let's make sure, I say we being uh, the, our, our approach, let's make sure that this doesn't happen to some of our suburban communities because we know that they're always doing good. Because it was very clear what Dr. Emerson talked about, that the relationship of wealth and all of those different kinds of things were clearly connected to. And I can give you a lot of information on on this discussion about how you appraise a community. You probably know a lot of it, but as a whole workshop itself. Uh, the second thing I think we tried to do is we said, well, let's get spiritual with it, and then we use the promise keepers. People hate when I talk about this because the promise keepers are so loved, but bear with me. Um, uh, the promise keepers had a great idea uh, run by Car Coach McCartney, and he really said, let's just get the men, mostly men, uh, and we'll, we'll pull black and white men together and we'll have them apologize to each other and, and we'll just love on each other and we'll sing Kumbaya. And, uh, and we'll really kind of highlight what biblical men ought to do. And if we know it, we can do it. And what it did was it, it, it created a colorblind male church community abroad so that now that you've apologized to me, I can't talk about 
the fact that the things that you do, like for example, going to the job fair doesn't do me any good because when I was 17, I had a bag of weed in my car and I got stopped and I'm a felon now. So going to the job fair doesn't do me any good. And then uh, you're saying, well, I invited him to the job fair and he never came, but we can't talk about that because you know, we blended ourselves together and we were racially loving each other. And so you can't bring up race stuff no more. We've gone colorblind. So you can't help me with my problems. So, so while it did do good and does do good to get men to live right with their families and everything else, it doesn't resolve the issues, the social issues that make us have a different experience in the world that we both live in. And so the question is, do you desegregate the church first or desegregate the uh, 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 the society first or the world that the church lives in first and then see desegregation take place. And that's the question of the chicken or the egg, you know, the, the age old question, you know, which ones comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, and, uh, you know, because the question is, you're going to either you start with a chicken, uh, you start with an egg. I mean, one of them is going to get you what you want in the long run. And uh, so, so which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this particular case, I don't think that you can desegregate churches everywhere and think that you're going to have some progressive reality that's going to change all of the, the dynamics and bring forth the leverage we need to be effectively working together. And, and what we've seen that in a lot of cases, we have desegregated churches all over our city. And, uh, and what happens is, and, and whenever you say let's desegregate, what you really mean is black people need to go to white churches because white people ain't coming. Because if you want to desegregate a neighborhood, you think white people are going to say, I think I'm going to move down to the hood. <laughs> now, they'll do a drive-by. They'll come by and drop some stuff off, you know. Uh, but we, we served in the hood, but uh, they're going to move to the hood. Uh, and, and white people and black people will say, I, I'll move out there. I mean, black folk, I'll move out there. I mean, you move out there and get the privilege that they have out there, unless you think you are. Uh, but... You know, uh, those kinds of things uh, we need to really look at. So, so the question is, how do we get to the point where we're really resolving this issue and getting there? How, how am I doing? Who am I looking at? Oh, I'm looking at, oh, there you are. Uh, I'm looking at the other Emerson. Uh, so, so, so here's the question. How did they do it? We're, we're not the first ones to come up with this problem. How did they do it in the first century? Uh, in the first century, how did they deal with race and ethnic issues? And so, uh, so we go to Acts 2, and Acts 2 says this, uh, beginning at verse number 5. It says, um, it says now they were, they were, uh, they were staying in, in Jerusalem, uh, God-fearing Jews from every nation under the heaven. So you had all these different cultural people that were coming together. He says, when they heard the sound, and it goes on and talks about they heard, they heard the gospel in their own cultural reflection, their own voice. So everybody heard the gospel, and they were shocked and amazed. Uh, and then they said, who are these men? They're not even from our culture. He says, they're, 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 these guys are Galileans, and they're talking in our culture. So it's like a white guy walked in and said, what's up, y'all? Uh, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, kind of what happened here. Uh, and then he says, uh, how is it that each of us hear in our own native language? How of us hear our own dialect? our own scenario. Now, they had different languages that they talked, but they really had different dialects more than different languages. So it was a spread of the language that was uh, different because it resulted, it was the result of a community of folks whose language was shaped based on the community that they lived in. So they had these differences um, and things of that nature. So 
Then it says in uh, verse number nine, it says, uh, it goes and it begins to describe, and I'm not going to go through and name all of those because I have dyslexia. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it, it goes through and it talks about all the different cultures that gathered together. These guys were visiting in Rome. You had these guys that were there. You had converts, you had Jews and converts to Jews. So it, 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 these folks had a common belief and they were all together and it talks about them. And they heard everything in their own dialect. And then it says, and uh, amazed and perplexed, they ask, what does it mean that we now get along? I mean, what, what, what does it mean that all of us who are segregated and separated by culture, separated by history, separated by strategy, separated by multi-generational uh, multi uh, perspectives, what does it mean that all of us now are in the same place hearing, uh, uh, hearing the same thing? And so now, here's what they did. It, it, they came to this conclusion that all, believe, all believers had, uh, and I'm, I'm going down to uh, chapter 2, verse number 42. All believers were together and had everything in common. So all these folks had everything in common. So now they had the same problem we had. And notice what they did, and we'll convert it. Don't get scared. We'll convert it to, uh, to what it means in today's society. But it's three things that they did. Here's the first thing. They sold their possessions and their goods, and they gave, uh, uh, gave to everyone uh, as he had need. Now, when they sold their possessions and their goods, they sold their possessions and their goods. Most of the sales took place back in their old, old neighborhoods. So it's not like they had stuff in Jerusalem because they were traveling. They were like on vacation coming to this event. And then this event said they had such a unity there. That they said there's more power in the unity than it is an individual. So what they did was they sold what they had in their home culture. And then they brought all that they had and they created a culture within themselves. Okay, we'll talk about what that looks like. Uh, and then it says, uh, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. The temple courts were the business world. So now you got a whole bunch of people that didn't have jobs, and they recognized that Monday through Saturday was just as important as Sunday, or in their case, uh, Sunday through, through Friday was just as important as Saturday. But whatever the case was, they figured, listen, this has to be a lifestyle adjustment. None of these folks had jobs. They all sold their homes and everything else, and they came here. They don't have jobs. So what we did was they had what's called, uh, they had sort of a job fair, but they really had connections. There were some people who had privilege because they had Jewish privilege because they were there. Some of them had Roman privilege because they were already there. And what they did was they said, let's leverage what we have so that everybody who's part of the team can benefit the same way. So even if you were not from the culture, then it is some of the benefit. I had a, I had a, a friend of mine, a white friend, pretty wealthy, uh, and uh, I was going down, this was years ago, I was going down to the Kansas City Club. Kansas City Club was membership only, and the memberships didn't look as dark as me. Right? <laughs> so I went to the door, and because uh, I was invited. So I go to the door, knock on the door, and uh, so I said, uh, I'm supposed to come here, and visit with a guy. No, first, the first thing the guy said to me is, no, we're not taking applications right now. <laughs> so I said, well, now I'm actually here to visit with another person. He says, well, this is a membership club. If you're not a member, then you can't, you know, you can't be part of the club. And so just when I said that, my friend walks by and said, hey, hey, he's with me. So he says, oh, I'm sorry. So they begged about it away and they let me in there. So I'm walking through there. All while I was through there, I got interrupted 
several times. I went down into the locker room because we was going to do some things in the locker room, whatever. And they said, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. You don't have a name. You don't have your name tag. And so we can't have you down here. You know what I said? And then he says, oh, oh, he's, he's with me. He said he's with me about five times when we were in that place. And every time he said he's with me, his privilege was extended to me. Now, which was a great thing. Now, I also had, uh, we was doing some work with Brush Creek Partners, and I had a friend of mine who was white come down to 45th Street, and this was, this was when they had a pornography place across the street, no streets, lights on truce. The building next door was not, not uh, uh, CVS at the time. It was an old, broken-down buy right or whatever it was, and uh, prostitutes were running up and down the street on a regular basis. This is kind of what it was like when we first moved into the Christian Fellowship area. And so... He came down there with me. So he's walking through there. Now he's scared. First of all, he had a, like a Lexus or something. And so he's like, everybody's like, oh, either you coming to buy something <laughs> or you don't belong here. <laughs> so you gonna buy something or get something taken from you. What are the two? And so, and so when I saw him pull into the parking lot, I thought I better walk out there. So I walked out there. And as I walked through there, I did the same thing. I said, come on, man. And then I said, hey, y'all, you with me. That means don't mess with his car. We walk down the street, everybody looking. One of the girls says, hey, now. I said, no, he with me. <laughs> and, so, and so I had a privilege there, just like he had a privilege there. But what we did was we leveraged our privileges so that we can come together and come up with a strategy that could impact uh, all of the city. And, you know, I could go on and on. We have Brush Creek Partners and some other things that are a result of that. So let me hit you with these things, and, and then we'll, we'll close up. So what does it mean today when it comes to selling their possessions and their goods um, so that everybody can have their needs? It does not mean, uh, you know, personal wealth distribution, like you got to sell your house and give me part of the proceeds and all that kind of stuff. So white people, you can calm down. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But what it meant was, it meant was they, they really sat down and said, how can my practical privilege benefit the other people around the table? And really, you do it all the time. It's just your niece or your nephew or your brother or the guy who lived down the street from you and everything else. I remember, I remember when I got arrested by, by, I had a ticket being arrested when I was playing football. And one of the football players, uh, you know, I was going to go to court. And so I was like, because that's all I know, is to go to court. And then the guy, I was over at Troy's house, one of the football players, and it, the guy who played football with me, and Troy said, you still got that ticket? I said, yeah, because me and him got a ticket together. He said, uh, you got it with you? I said, yeah, it's in my pocket. And so we walked back into where his dad was. And he said, dad, uh, Arch, which you called me at the time, you know, Arch got a ticket. He got the same ticket. And so his dad came in and gave me a little lecture, kind of one of those leave it to beaver things. And, uh, <laughs> and so I just, yes, sir, yes, sir. And he says, now give it to me. Give me the ticket. So I gave him the ticket. He walked back into the other room. And then he came back in here and says, now, it's all taken care of. I'm like, what? And so, uh, so I said, I don't have to go to court. He said, no, nah, you just need to stay out of trouble. So, okay. So I put the gift in my pocket. I never went to court. Never got in trouble. The other guys who were with us who were black, they did get in trouble. None of the whites got in trouble. And so I'm like, that's how white people do. But you know what happened? <laughs> what happened is he went to school with the assistant prosecutor. And so, therefore, he made a call, gave him the numbers, gave him the information, and all of a sudden it just disappeared. I had never seen nothing like that happen before, but I began to recognize, oh, okay, there's some privilege. You know, so 
those kind of things. So we really have to look at our understanding of economy as not just money. Our understanding of economy needs to be broken down into three things. I think influence, authority, and resources. Resources is all we look at, but influence and authority. I had a guy from Kaufman Foundation, uh, his name was Bob Rogers. Kaufman, he said to me, he said, listen, um, he says, I would like to give you guys a grant. And so what can I give you, Christian Fellowship, a grant while he's working on Burst Creek Partners? And uh, he said, what can I give you that would be really, really important to you? And I said, I'd be quite honest with you, Bob. I don't know if I want to be a recipient because I've seen how recipients are, t- t- are treated. I said, right now I have access. I have free access into the Carpenter Foundation building. I got a card that says I'm welcome. I come up to your office anytime. I call your secretary to make arrangements for me to travel to different places. I mean, I got privileges that are pretty good. I don't know if I want to get these up. I said, but here's what I do want. Every leadership uh, uh, training that you go through, I want to be able to go with you. So that was ideal. For the six, next six years, until he retired, I went to every leadership training with him, cost-free cost for me. What he did was he let me into his privilege. His resources were not near as important. Now, is it better for me to be able to put your name on my resume? Or for you to give me $10 to buy me some Burger King. You see what I'm saying? So we got to think of economy in a different way. Second thing, uh, the temple courts. The temple courts, we must be able to gather together effectively and, uh, and understand how the way you fit into the cultural workplace, you have to be able to say, how do I invite people like this to fit in there at the same time? I had a guy who was here, and uh, I was having a conversation with him. I hope he's not here tonight. But... Uh, but he came up to me and he talked to me about, he says, a group of us are working with this young man who were helping him start his business. He's starting a lawn care business. And what we're doing is calling these companies that we have access to and making sure that he gets, uh, that he gets enough business to survive on his lawn care. And his business is growing and he's doing really, really good. And he really needs some people to work for him. So can you talk to people in your congregation who wants jobs and we can get them employed by this guy? And I said, that would be great. I said, you know what else would be great? If we took one of our young people who are interested in becoming an entrepreneur and a group of you guys coached him so that he could be effective and then he could come back and hire some of the other people and give them the coaching that you gave him and then we have a generational strategy that will help us all grow. Then he says, okay, all right, well, give me your card and I'll call you which means you ain't gonna hear from me no more. <laughs> and I didn't hear from him anymore. The fat, to fathom that you would treat one of our people like you treat your people was so far out of range. I don't even think he understood that he was using his privilege when he was giving it to somebody who looked like him. You know, uh, and so I think we gotta be able to think about how we affect the temple courts. Let me say that the other thing is, we gotta be able to disconnect ourselves from media influence. If the media tell you who I am, I'm gonna always be bad. If the media tells me who you are, you're gonna always be bad. The result of the race disconnect that we saw, uh, I'm on the next slide, I think. Every day they continue to beat the brick bed together. Yeah, go on to the next slide. I'm, I'm skipping because I know my time is. Uh, and so, uh, if the media defines me to you, then you will never get to know me. 
One of the things that we're trying to do is, and we've been talking about with the police department, there's a vibe between the police department and, uh, and, and, uh, and the, especially the urban community, especially the black community. Uh, now, here's the problem. The problem is that blacks, to most police departments, aren't humanized. So there's no humanization because there's no relationship. So when you arrest a white guy, it could be your cousin. It could be your nephew. It could be somebody else. So you look at that person as a human because you have experiences with people who look like them. Now, what we've learned in our relationship together is I cannot, make, I cannot judge all white people by bad things that some white people do because I know Tom. <laughs> and so therefore, <laughs> and so, the, so the strategy doesn't work. And so like, like if, I, if I judge all white people, Tom fit in there. And so, but I know Tom's not prejudiced. You know, and even if we have differences about what we would think politically or how we think the, the, the economy or the world needs to be resolved, I still know Tom. And so that takes away. You know, we had this judge, this kid, uh, this kid raped this, this girl behind the uh, dumpsters while she was, while she was out. You guys probably heard about that. And... Uh, and the biggest thing with that is he, what the judge said was, I don't want to mess up his career as a student by, uh, by giving him a sentence that would mess up his life. Now, that judge was saying, I got some relatives that look like him. He humanized the person. And so his mercy came from the humanization. I think our problem is, is we're so disconnected that we don't humanize. So we want to do things like coffee with cops. Where we come together and we sit down. We want to take them birthday uh, celebrations once a month so that they can see us as humans. So when you see somebody who look like me, he's not automatically the criminal. Okay? It's just the humanization. I think the same thing needs to happen cross-culturally with the churches. Uh, let me say this. You saying hurry up? You look at me that look. Look like his daddy. <laughs> the, uh, but go to the, the, the what problem, if we fix this problem, if we did those three things, like they did in Acts, what, what would be the outcome? You want me to tell you what problems we would solve? Go a couple slides down. I really would love to talk about this, but we don't have time. Go to the next one. Uh, these are the problems we would solve. Does this look familiar? White evangelicals' perspective of individual sin and, and misinterpretation. We would deal with the divisions uh, between individuals and we would deal with the issue of blame uh, uh, and self-interested minorities. We would, next slide, we would address uh, the unequal access to education, neighborhoods and resources and we would deal with systematic discrimination. That's what would happen if we did it like they did it in Acts. And so we would get to the point where we see these things are culturally pushing one way. But if we are who God called us to be, the gates of hell can't prevail against us. It can't prevail against the world. It can't prevail against us. That means that when it's coming our way, we can put up such a block that it can't get past us. And then we become the force that moves it the other way. And I think as long as we are following them, we are the result of the culture. When we become who God has called us to be in our citizenship with him, the culture becomes the result of us. And that's, that's the divide that we face when it comes to every single element that we face. All right? All right, thanks a lot. Appreciate it.